Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. The Buddha had a uh, key teaching, which is commonly known as dependent co-arising. And uh, in it, he made a a brilliant claim that uh, all of our thoughts and behaviors are, in essence, influenced or predisposed by unconscious mental processes that happen without our awareness. In essence, he said that in every experience in life, there is this uh, physiological uh, response to the settings, the environment we're in, and whether that response, those feelings we have, are positive or negative determine all of our thoughts and behaviors. So we are, in essence... Uh, not really anywhere near as much uh, organized by free will or driven by conscious awareness that there are these pre-conscious processes in place that well before there's any cognition or understanding of the situation we're in have already predisposed us towards feeling uh, either safe and from safety or positive comfort, what the Buddha calls uh, sukhavedana. There's good feelings, and that predisposes us into approach, connecting, relaxing, engaging. Or there's negative dukkha, which creates uh, dukkhavedana, which creates a sense of withdrawal, wanting to end engagement, wanting to pull away wanting to remove ourselves from a situation. Now, this teaching has, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, given the fact that this teaching was originally proposed 2,500 years ago, during the time of the historical Buddha, without any uh, access to neuropsychology or clinical research, Today, in the last 30 years, uh, these uh, proposals have really come to fruition. And we now know that uh, the autonomic nervous system, your nervous system, is basically a what's called, and from a clinical perspective, a subcortical security system. And what it's doing is, at every moment of your life, very, very quickly, and it's basically in about a tenth of a second before any conscious awareness or understanding arises, you are scanning your environment and the constant question your nervous system is essentially asking is, am I safe? And it's doing this through what is now called neuroception. Uh, Right now, you're all consciously paying attention to me. And so most of the, a lot of your conscious awareness is listening to my words and maybe looking at some of my, here, my hand gestures. But intermittently, 
so fast you're not even aware of it. Your eyes are looking away from me, scanning the room. Your ears are not only hearing my voice, but checking for any sound of a threat. Your body is constantly surveying the environment and making sure that you're safe. And it's also, it's picking up cues, not just from my nonverbal expressions, whether I'm making eye contact, whether my tone of voice is inviting, whether my body language is not threatening, but you're also scanning your own body and seeing if you feel safe and you're scanning the environment. And all of this is happening extremely quickly and it's coming up with a pre-conscious verdict. Either you feel uh, safe and capable of engaging, or you're feeling a sense of threat, or you're feeling a sense of complete overwhelm, and uh, you're on the verge of a shutdown state. These are the very three basic states of your nervous system and everybody's nervous system, and from these three states come all of our thoughts, all of our behaviors. You cannot if you are in a state of shutdown or threat, go into the broaden and build positive emotions and think in terms of engagement and think in terms of building trust with others. If your body is in a state of essentially uh, alert, hypervigilance, you've been triggered into a state of not feeling safe, you won't be able to go into all of the behaviors and creative endeavors and trusting interactions that require your nervous system to be in a completely different state. So the state of our nervous system determines everything else, the way we act, the way we behave. So let's look a little bit more at the three basic states that we can be in and what they're associated with in terms of thoughts and in terms of behaviors. So the most ancient setting is the old parasympathetic. It was developed around 500 million years ago, and it protects us via complete immobilization. When you are playing dead, when you are in a shutdown state, um, when you're dissociating, when you're not present, when you are asleep, when you are after an accident and you're healing, you are in this ancient restorative state where the what's called a high vagal tone, and that's worth knowing. Your vagal tone is what uh, lowers your blood pressure, lowers your heart rate, uh, allows you to digest. So the higher your vagal tone, the healthier. When you're in this ancient shutdown state, you're actually, in essence, uh, restoring after an accident or you're playing dead because you think you're about to be eaten. Uh, it shuts you down. It shuts down all of your breathing, all of your digestion, all of your blood pressure. And it's an analgesic state, which means you're not feeling any pain. You're not aware of your environment around you. And so it's a protective state. Um, after an accident, Again, you would be in this state after uh, if you felt your life was in, in overwhelming danger 
to the point that you were in a trauma event, you'd go into this state. People who are in this state chronically uh, very often have what's called post-traumatic stress disorder after a trauma. They experience feelings of being frozen, numb, not here. They gaze out of the window into space. When you interact with them, they'll have very vacant eyes. They'll have this pit of the stomach, dorsal dive it's known, when you're in this parasympathetic shutdown state, all of the energy in the body goes down and it sort of stops right around the abdomen. There's a collapsed posture. There's no engagement. I've done, a, I've done 12 years volunteer work at New York Zen Center for Contemplative Studies, training hospice workers and also doing hospice and volunteer work with people who have um, severe life challenges due to significant health diagnosis and um, very often the work involves being with people who are in the shutdown state and that is again the ancient poly uh, parasympathetic nervous system so we'll call it shutdown and it's associated with states of depression dissociation not being present now much significantly more recent, about 400 million years ago, uh, the sympathetic nervous system started to develop and that's what allowed for mobilization to survive. Whereas parasympathetic is shut down, play dead, restore. Your sympathetic nervous system, which is spinal, it uses the spinal column and it, 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 what it does is it does the exact opposite of the first state. It gets you ready to act, to survive, to take action. So it removes the, ba the vagal break and your heart rate starts firing. The muscle tone builds. The blood starts circulating. You start hyperventilating. <sighs> you start getting ready to take action. It's, it's associated with fight or flight. It's also associated with exercise and with sex. It's essentially core survival actions. The earliest state, the shutdown state, is not an action. It's just a collapse. There's no mobilization. So during it, your heart rate plummets to virtually nothing. You have no, very low blood pressure. When you are, however, in the second state of mobilization or alert to survive, your blood is racing, your heart your blood pressure is high and so if this is done for a short time due to a release of adrenaline and you're for instance you're playing a sport I have no idea why you're doing that but somebody's <laughs> for, for no, discern, <laughs> no discernible reasons uh, kicking a ball at you <laughs> and, and uh, so it's okay to be in this activated you know sympathetic nervous system state for a short period it's healthy for your heart it, it releasing of adrenaline for short periods actually makes you feel powerful and it lifts you out of depression so move a muscle change of thought if you're in a depressed state exercising taking some vigorous activity lifts you out of the 
the low vagal, I mean, the, the parasympathetic into the sympathetic, and you're now activating, and that's the only way out of depression, is to create a mobilization alert, because alert keeps you now present. You're hypervigilant, you're looking at the world around you. If you were depressed, dissociative, in a fugue state due to PTSD, you'd be checked out. You wouldn't be aware of your environment. You'd be completely depressed. And so part of the work of lifting somebody all the way out of depression is getting them mobilized. Um, unfortunately, if you are chronically in sympathetic nervous system alert state, that's not very good. Uh, that's associated with chronic stress, high cortisol, very bad for your body. Uh, aging uh, stops the production of white blood cells, makes you extremely susceptible to diseases, to viruses, makes uh, you prone to cancers, to uh, high blood pressure, to diabetes. Um, it lowers your oxytocin level if you're chronically in stress, which means you will not trust other people and you will have racing, intrusive thoughts. You might have experienced this, I experienced this pretty commonly when I need to leave my house to go to an appointment and I can't find my keys. So in that moment, there's a sudden alert state and then I look for my keys in the same damn two places over and over again where I've already determined they are not. But <laughs> When you're in a sympathetic alert, hypervigilant state, you can't think outside of the box. You'll just have the same repetitive overall thoughts. Damn it, who moved my keys? Or why are there so many you know, places my keys could be? Anger will be quick. We'll suddenly start thinking that other people are doing something to us. And the more we're in a mobilization state chronically, the more endangered we feel. It's a feedback loop because in our ancestral past, if you were in a state of needing to act to survive, it was very bad news because in that state, it would be everyone for themselves. You would be looking for safety at all costs and very likely you'd wind up isolated. Unfortunately, for the human species, winding up isolated makes us even more endangered. So the very act of scanning for safety and mobilizing makes you feel even more unsafe. So it creates a feedback loop of re-triggering more and more cortisol. The highest state of the autonomic nervous system, the most healthy from a psychobiological level, the, the state that allows us to engage and bond with others and trust others, is the social engagement state. And it uses a new nervous system known as the, the ventral vagal. And that's very new. That's uh, in terms of its full fruition only probably a few million years old. And essentially what it does is it uh, allows us to fully express all of our emotions on our faces so that we can interact with each other from a uh, ability to read each other. When you're in the state, 
the vagal tone returns, your heart rate lowers, but not as low as the shutdown state. It, balance, it, it sets good blood pressure. It, this, it, it inhibits mobilization, so you're less likely to become fight or flight. You're more likely to engage with other people. It sets you up in a state where you want to trust. It does that because when you're in this state, when you're in the ventral vagal, it's going to lift your oxytocin levels. And when you're in high oxytocin, you want to trust. Oxytocin is the neurotransmitter associated with bonding, associating with trusting other people. So in this state, you're relaxed, you're engaged, you're interested in other people, you're curious, you want to bond. These are the three states, and I'll just repeat them just so that you know them because it's important to know all the time what state you're in. You're either in a kind of depressed shutdown where you are checked out, there's very little emotion, no desire to move, you just want to sleep, you don't want to get out of bed, you're checked, you're, there's no sense of engagement, or you're activated, you're feeling under threat, you're scanning your environment, you want to take survival actions at all costs, you feel triggered, your heart rate is racing, your digestion is stopped, or you're in a state of social engagement. Once again, your heart rate is relaxed, this time you now want to bond with others, you want to share your emotions, you want to listen to what other people are going through, and you can co-regulate, which means when you're in this highest state, you and other people's nervous systems will sync together. And if somebody is stressed out and you're in this state, you can soothe them. And that's how people actually heal and get out of being in a triggered state. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So normally in our day-to-day -day life, we move from social engagement, you meet a stranger, you're in a new job or a new situation, you're introduced to someone, you're in pro-social, your heart rate is relaxed, you use facial contact, expressions, tone of voice, language. If they're kind of <laughs> give you a weird look or they look remote, then there's a subtle raising of the heart rate and then we're now in alert. We want to get away from them. We don't want to engage with them anymore. And then if they suddenly punch you or, you know, reach for your wallet or I don't know what they do, it's a, obviously a bizarre situation you're in, then you go into a kind of shutdown. Um, it's happening to us all the time. I can give you a basic example. Uh, suppose you wound up in the dreaded situation of going on a date <laughs> with someone that you have met via social uh, dating apps. Uh, they're not called social dating apps, they're just called <laughs> dating apps. And um, so you go, you meet someone who's essentially fairly unknown to you. You've just exchanged a few meaningless texts and now you're in front of them and when you meet them they give you a smile a welcoming look and so what happens is now you're up and social engage your heart rate lowers you want to bond you smile you feel that you can you're interested in them you want to connect but suddenly while you're talking or you're trying to connect with them you notice 
that you've lost their attention and they're suddenly looking at their cell phone. So they've disengaged from you. Well, any violation of expectation of connection lowers you down the nervous system ladder. You're no longer in social engagement. Now you're in alert states. You've picked up a sense of rejection and that for the human species is a very triggering unsafe experience even though it's just someone looking away from you believe it or not in our ancestral history if somebody suddenly looked away from us that we expected connection it was very often a sign that we were about to be rejected so there's a sudden heightened and very often what that will mean is you'll have a sudden sense of self-doubt You'll change the subject. You'll try to regain their attention. You'll become mobilized for action. You're no longer now trying to bond. You're trying to get their attention or trying to do something. Now suddenly, this individual horrifically gets up in the middle of the interaction and says, I'm sorry, this is not uh, going to work. I'm sorry for taking your time. And they walk away. Well, now you're in the dorsal dive. <laughs> All the energy is going back to the pit of your stomach. You feel all the energy leave your body. You're now in a state of collapse almost. Not fully, but you're in that depressed, what's the matter with me? Why is it that, uh, you know, what did I do wrong? There's a sense of just wanting to crawl up in a hole and disappear. So that's just a basic example of the three states that we go in. Another example is you're driving, suddenly you hear a siren behind you. So when you were driving, you were happy, you were engaged, listening to a podcast. Then suddenly the a police siren comes behind you, you're an alert, oh my God, what did I do? Did I, was I speeding? Did I take a wrong turn? You pull to the side, then the cop car whizzes by you and once again, you're back up and engaged. You feel your heart rate lowering. You start to feel your blood pressure lowering. You start to feel your breath rate relaxing and so forth. So we move back and forth between the state of engage and alert all the time. The key is emotionally, in this talk, emotionally regulating others. And we are all the time locking or syncing with other people, our nervous system. That's what's called emotion co-regulation or limbic co-regulation. In every interaction, you are, if you are in an engaged state, you are trying to lock in with someone. You are trying to sync with them. And if you meet somebody that's a good sync, very rapidly, your heart rates will align your blood pressure will lower. Studies show that if you're with someone you love and you're about to get a, a very slight electric shock, you'll feel very little pain. You're, even though you are anticipating some pain, your heart rate won't spike. But if you're not with someone, if you feel you're alone and they give you a, a slight electric shock, you'll feel a great amount of pain and your heart rate will spike and your blood pressure will spike and you'll go into an alert state. So depending upon whether you're connected with someone or not, depends upon, will raise the level of endorphins, you'll feel less pain, you'll feel safer in your life, you'll be more trusting, your body will be healthier, and um, 
So all the time, in every situation, while we're listening to people's words, that's very, very little. In fact, that's almost meaningless in terms of changing someone's mood, their state of being. Language is way too late in the process of shifting another person's autonomic nervous system. It plays no role. So if somebody's depressed that you're with or somebody's in a state of constant anxiety or distress, trying to talk them out of it will not work because language doesn't reach the, your autonomic nervous system, the amygdala, the, the key regions of the limbic regions do not understand it. And so the other person will stay in the same state. But, so while reassuring words are ineffective, nonverbal cues which are read by neuroception very quickly are very effective. So the bulk of a therapeutic environment, the bulk of healing a friend who's in distress, the bulk of helping a loved one, a parent, or someone who's chronically in a state of anxiety or depression starts by all the nonverbal cues we have at our disposal. One, it requires presenting in literally a safe way, which means not getting too close, but not too far having a sense of you can tell when you're with someone whether they are still engaged or whether they feel their body starts to move away from you or whether they're now feeling that they can't hear you so having a good sense of the space that you're creating with someone is very useful Two, having an expression that conveys um, interest but non-judgment so you're not in any way evaluating, not in any way going to show overt pity or criticism. You're simply present for this person and you're interested in what's going on. And it's not that difficult to develop it because if you feel this way, if you can focus on being interested in what someone's experiencing, not feeling threatened, not responding to the state of I have to do something about it which puts you that lowers you into alert and that will not help them because now you're in an activated state too if you feel you have to do something about someone you have to cheer them up you have to make them feel better you have to solve their problems you have to figure out how to help them what you're doing is ultimately destructive the nervous state of a human being is not seeking words, it's seeking this neuroceptive state of syncing with someone else. And so the work happens by first actually meeting the person at the place where they are a bit, and that's called empathy. If somebody's really frightened about what's happening in their life, if we're really open and available to them, our face will start to, to mirror that fear that they're experiencing. We won't be all the way in their fear, but we'll have some mark of fear in our face, and that sinks us in with them. 
But now we are not as frightened as they are. And so we will unconsciously, simply by being with them and asking them questions and listening to them, we will start lifting them out of fear, alert, back up into social engage. And none of the process actually happens through overthinking it or coming up with something clever to say, or coming up with a solution for what's going on for them, or even being reassuring. The heavy lifting is simply through the empathetic bond that sinks us in, and then the other person's nervous system starts to co-regulate with ours and lift up with ours. The biggest thing that shifts someone's uh, settings is violating their expectations. You can do this positively or negatively. If somebody, if a child expects connection and they get uh, abandonment or rejection or shaming or criticism, then that lowers them into either anxiety or to shut down. If somebody expects someone to listen to them and they get this intrusive, controlling, enmeshing, you know, engulfing, this is what you need to do, that will also lower them down the autonomic nervous system ladder. But if they expect, on the other hand, someone to just tell them what to do or to judge them, and instead all you do is present them with interest, non-judgment, curiosity, care, then you're actually violating their negative expectations and you're healing. You're creating what's called the corrective emotional response. None of this you have to have any intelligence to do in terms of you don't have to think of any solutions for them. You're just asking questions. You're just being present. You're just trying to find out what the experience is like, when the experience is acute and when it's not. Studies show that uh, empathy and recognition has the greatest effect on trust. So conveying a sense of acknowledging someone's resilience, even though they might feel very weakened, they might feel under stress, asking them about times that they've felt uh, connected with others or what times have they felt that they've done something proactive and really verb, non-verbally, I should say, acknowledging that. The more you focus on also paying paying attention to the areas of strength in someone's life, that will lift them up. And it actually releases oxytocin. There was a study by Paul Zak that in people who feel they're in high trust environments uh, have 33% less sick days and 53% less chronic stress. And the only thing they need to feel trust is simply someone who listens, pays attention, acknowledges their own, their emotions that they share in common with the person who's suffering. So employees who are happy and feel a greater sense of uh, connection and trust in their jobs generally work for someone who allows them to have a lot of control and say in what they do. And someone, a, a supervisor, who's very, very vulnerable and discloses their own challenges so that they don't feel that they're in this sort of hierarchical place where they're being judged. The more you disclose your own challenges, the less someone who's struggling will feel that they're being judged. So disclosing 
is a really beneficial, if you're with somebody who's depressed or anxious, disclose your own experiences with it. Don't focus so much on the, you know, saying what you did, that'll sound instructive, you know, what you did to get out of it. Just acknowledge, yes, I've, I've been there. I, I've had my own experiences with it. It was really hard for me. That helps, it normalizes the emotion. Um, there are also some real t tips, that, uh, tricks, that are not tricks of the trade in therapy. They're basic tools that are very, very useful. If somebody's really, really triggered, get, ask them to write down the greatest fear or to draw it on a piece of paper and then ask them to place that paper somewhere else in the room. So now they've actually externalized and they've actually placed it and you, they can visualize the thing they're frightened of, but it doesn't feel like it's in them. If you can get them to open up their chest and soften their belly, that's the physiological state you're in when you're in the highest autonomic nervous system. When you're in engaged state, your chest is open, your belly's relaxed and your breath is soft. So if you can change their body state, get them to, when I'm working with people, I'm generally getting them to pull back, open their shoulders, soften their belly, you know, make eye contact. Just that alone is extremely useful. And so finally, in the meditation, we're also going to do a technique that I use with people not only to, um, help them feel safer and move up the settings in the nervous system so they can be more, uh, feel a greater sense of safety and essentially address triggers in their life. But it also is very relaxing for the person who offers care to someone else. Uh, I can say that all of these tools, as you use them, will, the more that you focus on keeping your body relaxed, your chest open, long out breaths, not trying to fix or solve, stay in a just interested, curious state, you will not pick up another person's stress. The way we pick up someone else's stress is when we're unaware of our own body state, when we're up here in this cognitive state of trying to figure out and solve someone else's issues. The more you stay out of this, I need to solve, stay engaged, curious, keep your body relaxed. You won't. And my work is in working with people who are in significant states of distress. So if you are focused on them and on your own body, your own breath, you won't be pulled in to the stress that they're in. So I hope that that was kind of interesting in some way. And now we're actually going to do the protective bubble meditation. Now this, this meditation is kind of a blend of some early core Theravadan Buddhist practices with some very contemporary therapeutic techniques in Buddha's 
recollections. He talks about reflecting on times that we were safe and creating that felt sense. And we're going to be using this as a way to create a sense of safety that will then help us understand when our body is in the engage trust state. So let's close our eyes. If you don't want to close your eyes, that's fine. Just look at the ground in front of you. So let's take a few soothing breaths. It's worth noting that the longer and slower and more relaxed the exhalation, the higher your vagal tone. And what that does is it will slower your heart rate, slower the, lower the blood pressure help with increasing levels of oxytocin, raise endorphins. So in essence, you'll feel safer the longer your out-breaths are. Let's take a nice full in-breath through the nose and then a really long, twice as long as the in-breath. The in-breath raises your heart rate removes the vagal break so that your blood pressure raises. The out-breath does the opposite. So the longer the out-breath, the more relaxed. A nice in-breath that expands the belly, then the chest, then out-breath that just feels so much longer. You're not pushing out the breath, you're just releasing it. So when you take this next complete in-breath, lift your shoulders up. And then as you relieve Release the breath, gently lower your shoulders and pull them back, opening up the chest and just let them hang in a way that feels really comfortable. But keep the shoulders in a position that keeps your chest as open and expansive as you can. When your body is tight, it's in an alert state when your body is open and relaxed, it's in a engage trust state. So let's take our second in breath and this time either push out or pull in your belly just to an awkward amount where it feels slightly uncomfortable. And then as you breathe out and release the breath, softening the belly,
And for the third complete in-breath, squinching the muscles of the face, locking the jaw, squinching the eyes, making fists, squinching your toes, clenching the buttocks, just make the whole body tight, tight, tight. And then as you breathe out, relax, softening those micro-muscles around the eyes and in the forehead. Releasing any clenching in the jaw. Releasing any tightness around the ears and in the back of the neck. This is the ventral vagal associated with engagement where all of your emotions are expressed in your face. Cultivating greater feelings of safety will visualize a place where we feel really protected, a place where we traditionally go to, where we let go of all of the preoccupations and unresolved issues of our lives, where worries about money or worries about issues we have to deal with, we don't have any desire to address. We're at that place where we just go to to really unwind and to ease into a greater more expansive sense of just being alive, being present. For some of us, this might be a place by an ocean, a beach, or a, a place in nature, a trail, or a spot by the water. For some people, it might be a comfortable couch in a cabin or in a a location where we feel really safe. And just see if you can really visualize the setting and remind yourself what it feels like when you relax into a beach chair or a towel on the beach sinking into the sand, the warm rays of the sun, or when you reach the end of a trail and you sit on a rock overlooking an expanse or you're 
arrive by a body of water and you just hear the sounds and your all the tightness and the shoulders releases and there's no longer any desire to go anywhere, do anything. No desire to take care of anyone. At this moment in time, you are just present. All the issues, even the responsibilities you like, that you cherish, are released, and you're just allowed to take a complete breath, and there's no sense of any danger, no sense of any intrusion. See if you can find some sensation in your body that you feel when you're in this safe place. What do you feel? Very often for me it's a sense of the energy moving up my body in the front, a sense of a warmth in the chest, a relaxing of the muscles in the back of my neck, a sense of ease in my forehead. So now release the visual and just bring this body into the present experience right now. Hearing the sounds of the room, the car sounds drifting in, the sound of people breathing, ambient sounds of people talking in the distance, maybe the sounds of heating pipes or people upstairs. And just keep the shoulders and chest really open and just receiving everything without any defense. There's nothing that's going to, there's no threats, nothing to attack us. So just receiving life each breath receiving the actual sensations that are surrounding you, each out-breath letting go of any stress in your body, breathing in, accepting everything that's present right now, breathing out, releasing any stress you've been carrying around from previous events. And when your mind tries to return to unresolved issues or concerns about future situations, just remind yourself that 
You have all the time in the world to pay attention to those concerns, but this is your time just to return to direct, relaxed engagement. So when those thoughts grab your attention and you realize it, just gently let them go, no judgment. Just relax back into all the sensations surrounding you, the sensations of your body breathing. Once again, breathing in with acceptance everything that's present and breathing out, letting go, releasing stress.
I'd like you to now visualize the room around us. If you can't remember what it looks like, open your eyes just for a moment and see what the space in front of you looks like, and then close your eyes again. I'd like you to visualize yourself being in a protective bubble, completely transparent, kind of like a force field. It also has significant powers. It can float and move about, and when you're in this bubble, nothing can harm you. And even if somebody around you acts unskillfully, it doesn't affect you. You know you'll be okay when you're in this bubble. This bubble is not so big that you feel lost in it. You don't feel too distant from people, but it's not too small that you feel claustrophobic. So it might be an arm's length away or a couple of arm's lengths. And while you're in this bubble, you can float and bob. So almost see if you can imagine if you have that capability to visualize in your mind an image of yourself floating up towards the ceiling moving in a very safe, easy, relaxed way, and then you're floating back down to the ground. And when you're in this protective bubble, again, nothing can happen to you that's adverse at all. And other people can be disappointing, can be aggressive or abandoning, but you're, you feel safe when you're in this bubble. See if you can feel your body relaxing, knowing that you are <laughs> utterly secure, feeling any tension in your neck and shoulders, relaxing, your arms dropping away from the ears, your chest opening up, your belly relaxing. Nothing possibly triggering or bad can happen to you. And now take this bubble to a situation to an interaction with somebody that can be very difficult for you. A person that when you're around, you can feel very, very not heard, not seen. You can feel judged. You can feel criticized, but you're in this bubble. And while you're in it, you know that nothing bad can happen, that you're safe. 
And just visualize being in the challenging encounter, but now everything in your body is relaxed. So there's nothing to defend. We don't need to protect ourselves. Even when we're with this person that we associate with criticism or not taking care of us or not being present for us. As your body is completely open and spacious, the breath is long in the exhalation, the belly is soft. So even in the most triggering situation, you're still in approach, you're still in engage. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And what I'd like you to do is very, very slowly when you hear the sound, open your eyes and remember to bring this secure, relaxed, comfortable, open, confident body with you into the rest of the evening keeping an awareness on your belly being soft, your chest being open, and your out-breath being really long and relaxed. So you're bringing with you approach and gauge into every interaction 